0: This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Rob Simmons is back. There was a squeaker in Trumbull. And everything we thought would happen in Hartford and Bridgeport happened as unbelievable as some of it was. Today in the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable, a roundup of municipal elections. We'll hear from some of our reporters and also from you. Join us at 860-275-7266. Comment on our website wnpr.org slash live. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at live. We would especially love to hear from you. If you voted yesterday, tell us what turnout was like at your polling place and how you voted in municipal elections. Uh, I'll be talking about my experience in Winchester in just a moment. First, I want to welcome back to our program, uh, fresh from covering the aftermath of the uh, Canadian elections, uh, Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. How are things, Colin?
1: Good morning, Mr.
0: Dankowski. Yes, and not
1: only was I up there for uh, for Justin... Uh, but then I stopped for lunch in uh, Burlington for Bernie yesterday. He was, he was the mayor. <laughs>
0: you, you, you have to say Bernie Sanders twice more during the show right. just to appease everyone. <laughs> Susan Bigelow is here. She's a contributing columnist for the for CTNewsJunkie.com and uh, has been covering municipal elections for us. Susan, good to see you once again. Good morning. And Denise Merrill is here. She is Connecticut's secretary of the state. And thank you so much for being here as well. You're welcome. So uh, <laughs> let me just start with you, Denise, and, and and ask you how turnout was across the state yesterday. I was, I was voter 1322. The little machines tell you um, w- w- what number of voter you are at the single polling place of Winchester, Connecticut. Now, Winchester is a town of about 11,000 people, and uh, this was at about 530 at night. And so the fact that I was the 1,322nd voter felt like there weren't a whole lot of people voting in my town. How'd it go the rest of the place?
2: Um, that probably was pretty typical in many towns. Uh, I, I'm still saying, you know, we don't have all the numbers in yet. The towns have 48 hours to get us the definitive numbers, but... You know, I'm thinking it's gonna hover around thirty percent, thirty five, maybe at the top.
0: 30, 35. And, it, and that's about mm. that's about what we expect for free municipal election. That's what's always going to happen for municipal elections. I mean,
2: it's actually been slightly dropping over the years. I just looked at it the other day. And, you know, for the last six cycles or something, it used to hover around 36, 37 percent. It's slowly dropping. And I think there are some interesting reasons for that. But
0: now, now coming up later on the program, as we hear from our reporters, Patrick Scahill and Jeff Cohen and Harriet Jones, who've been covering some of these big races, we'll be talking about what happened in Bridgeport and what happened in Hartford. I just want to talk a little bit about about Turnout in some of election, uh, Colin. I mean, this is what our friend Danny Har from the Hartford Current calls the decline of, of Western civilization here. I mean, as we see these numbers decline, maybe it just has something to do with the fact that. People don't turn out for municipal elections because they're like, what's the point even? I mean, is that, is that the analysis that you'd yeah. go with? Well, some of it may be how people get their information
1: these days. Um, and people get their information a lot from television, which doesn't really cover... Uh, so, for example, in Bridgeport, you can get 44,000 people to vote in Bridgeport if it's a presidential election. There's like a lot of people in Bridgeport who can vote and who actually have voted and know how to vote. Uh, but even, even in a hard-fought mayoral campaign like Bridgeport was... People don't—they they just don't get their information the same way, and, and they don't get as excited about it. People um, tend to—and and it's not even just what journalism covers; it's commercials too. Um, you know, I—I I, I always come back to—I um, I, I don't know if I can pin down the year. I might have been '98, um, where I was at the one of the West Hartford polling places, and there was this guy kind of thrashing around inside the voting booth. It was the old-style voting booths, and he was like really. <laughs> He was really upset and he was, I mean, he was like, he was going to tip the whole thing over. And finally he yelled over the side, I can't find any election I want to vote in. I want to vote in that really dirty election, that that dirty election, you know, Maloney versus Johnson, the dirty election. Well, and so somebody had to tell him that that was the wrong congressional district. Uh, but he'd seen it on television. Sure. you know He'd been watching these attack ads, and so he wanted to be part of that somehow. And there just isn't a comparable level of participation. And so what you get is very fluky stuff. So like in New Milford yesterday, they had so much turnout, they ran out of ballots and they had a photocopy of them and stuff like that. But that's very unusual. You have to have an unusual set of driving circumstances to get people to wake up.
3: And it's it's not just that, but it's also the the total decline of local news over the past 20 years or so, there used to be every little town had its own little weekly paper. And even the larger papers had extensive sections on local things, local things that were happening. And that's just gone away and nothing has really replaced it. You have sort of experiments like Patch, which really kind of failed. And Really nothing else. I remember this from when I had my blog back in around 2006, 2007, that these little local papers were just dropping like flies. And there was nowhere people could get information about what was going on in their local races. So I think people from just From your blog. Know. We got information from your blog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I remember those
1: yeah.
0: days. Well, well so it, it seems as though uh, maybe turnout was just about what we always expect. How about problems at the polls? Colin talks about New Milford maybe uh, having higher turnout than, than expected and they have to print out some ballots. That's a little different than some of the problems we've heard about in, in recent elections in which people you know, just like, don't wake up in time or don't show up with the right number of ballots to begin with. What, what did you see? I mean, did, were things pretty much running as, as scheduled?
2: This was the quietest election I can remember from our point of view. You know, we had the occasional little glitch, but now people actually knew when they ran out of ballots that they could photocopy them. That's because we put in place these uh, emergency plans. I think there was a fire alarm that went off in New Haven. Well, they knew because they had a plan. Oh, it's OK to go outside and keep it going, you know, so. I think we have made some changes that have made a difference. You know, things are going a lot more smoothly. I mean, now people, there's a lot more training for the local election officials. I mean, I like to think some of the things we did actually made a difference. And then in Hartford, of course, we had a monitor on the ground because it had been uh, passed in a statute that, that Hartford would have a monitor. And I think it made a difference. You didn't see many problems in Hartford. I think we did have one moderator who didn't wake up, but it was only about 15 minutes.
0: I mean, you know, it's hard. There's the time change over the weekend. It's hard to to set the alarm the right way. But all things being equal, you're saying that the uh, the monitor in Hartford, you think, actually helped and you didn't see any real problems there. How long does the monitor have to stick around now in Hartford?
2: Uh, We can keep her there for, I think, another year if we need her. Um, I'm not sure how long we'll keep that going because it really seems to be going pretty well.
0: Speaking of election monitoring, there was a lot of Pressure on your office to monitor very closely what was going on in Bridgeport. Um, you said that essentially you had systems in place to monitor what was going on in the polls. Can you just give us a, a little bit of a recap of what you did to monitor the elections that were happening in Bridgeport with all of the controversy surrounding past elections in Bridgeport and and pressure coming at you from including the governor's office to make sure that this ran cleanly.
2: Yes. Uh, sometimes I think this office, the Secretary of State, is the most misunderstood office in Connecticut because everyone seems to think that I have this army of people ready to go in uh, like a SWAT team or something.
0: It's not more confusing than the comptroller. But anyway, please continue. <laughs>
2: <laughs> at least in pronunciation. Um yeah, we um it's a, it's a local election. Local elections are run by local officials. There's very little state intervention that goes on, and it's very, very, uh, very unusual to have any kind of intervention from the state. We advise local people on following the law, and we have sent people down, which I did yesterday, actually, to make sure the poll places were open, that they had enough ballots, which was, of course, the big problem in Bridgeport in 2010, uh, you know, that the lists were there, that they were implementing the law correctly, that they had the signs up about what ID you needed, that sort of thing. Um and that's where the problems have been. Uh, but we don't have a SWAT team of attorneys or anyone else who can go in and, you know, sit at the polls all day, which seemed to be what people were calling for, um, you know, unrealistic at best. But we do have a program that we put in place in about 2011 or 2012 with uh, the Bar Association. So I have volunteer attorneys, about 200 of them all over the state, who are not involved in a political campaign but are can go in – If someone identifies something's going on, you know, I've been denied my right to vote for whatever reason, we can send someone over to to kind of interview people and see what really happened to the best of their ability and see if it's really a problem. And then we report it to the Election Enforcement Commission, which is the outfit that actually – Deals with these problems. We do not do enforcement in our office. The Election Enforcement Commission does that.
0: So, less a SWAT more of like an AmeriCares kind of intervention. You know, just a, some people on the ground. But this this isn't officials who are sitting there and and really trying to monitor it in the way that was was being asked for by many.
2: No, that's the problem. I mean, we have 12 people in the entire election division. I have three attorneys and you know assorted other clerical staff. And um, you know, it just. It was not a realistic expectation, and nor should it be, I don't think. I think it's a very big deal to have the state step into a local election.
0: Oh, well, th- that all being said, Colin, we have had problems in Hartford and Bridgeport. It didn't turn out to be a problem yesterday because there weren't problems at the polls, and that's a very, very good thing. Also, in municipal elections, things are slightly different, as you alluded to at the top of the program, than when you have a lot of people turning out for a presidential election. But is this the right amount of oversight for cities that really have had problems in the past?
1: Well, maybe one thing we have to have Madam Secretary explain a little bit is uh, there was a a mild kerfuffle uh, in Bridgeport over what are called uh, unofficial checkers. I used to actually play unofficial checkers, and you can jump. It's complicated. The rules are a little bit different. Um, but so, uh, so maybe you, yep. you should set this up.
2: Yes, there is. A, there was a flap over the fact that there is a law that allows what we call unofficial checkers to sit in the polls and you know transmit information back to the party about who has voted or whatever. They're not allowed to interfere in anything, but uh, they are only under the current statute only the two major parties, have a right to unofficial checkers and any petitioning candidate who has at least a slate of three people. And... And minor parties in certain circumstances. So again, we're back to this fact that these statutes are mostly written at a time when there were mostly two major parties. And I've said this before on this show, that the rise of more third-party activity and petitioning candidates is really leading to some, I think, inequities in some of these situations. So in this case, you had Mary Jane Foster, who was a petitioning candidate, running on her own, no slate, and she did not have a right to those unofficial checkers. And so that, that does create an inequity.
1: Yeah, now Here I can say something. First of all, there, we were talking about this before we went on the air. There is sort of a point of diminishing returns. I mean, imagine a kind of chaotic Bridgeport polling place and now like every petitioning candidate has an unofficial checker there. I mean, there's a point of diminishing returns. Yeah, how many people do you want in, in a in a voting place before you have chaos? On the other hand, I, I would second what she just said, which is that party authority is breaking down. It's breaking down a lot at the local level. So uh, it does make a certain amount of sense to put some of these petitioning candidates on an equal footing uh, with with major party candidates. So if there's something that – I mean I, 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 so there will be a day when there will be like 19 unofficial checkers in one polling place and we'll be having another wheelhouse going, well, how did this happen? Nobody, this should never be allowed to happen. And then someone will say, no, you idiots actually said it should happen. So I mean there's – <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's a balancing act. But I I think the truth is there in what she said, that, that petitioning candidates probably should be on a more equal footing with the party endorsed.
3: Madam Secretary, there were some very close races last night, one in Fairfield and looks like the mayoral race in, in Meriden and looks like the incumbent Manny Santos lost, but they're, they're, the actual margin was very small. Um, So, again, I haven't heard about recounts or whether or not there's going to be any, but maybe you could walk us through what that would look like, what would happen then.
2: Uh, yes. There, there. It looks like we may have a few recounts. Uh, that's why we give the towns 48 hours, by the way, to get the results to us. Uh, the rule is if it, if it's within one half of 1% of the registered voters, uh, then there would be a recount. I mean, but these are automatic recounts. There's no discretion by anyone. And frequently this comes up as well. You know, can't you demand a recount? No. There's a very specific rule. It's one half of 1% or less than 20 votes, whichever applies. I, I haven't heard yet how close these races are, but it may come within that margin, in which case there will have to be a full recount uh, immediately following the election.
0: We've also been hearing about in, in elections moving forward uh, the, the idea that we'll get results much more quickly. We'll get some real-time results, but not for municipal elections. And maybe you can explain that. So we'll start to see this coming up in 2016 around uh, the big races that we're watching there, but it's not going to happen in 2017. Why not?
2: Uh, because it's, Connecticut has the most complicated system I can imagine of local elections— Every single ballot is different. <laughs> Sometimes it's vote for six out of nine. Sometimes it's like, you know, they're, they're on different cycles. So we tried to produce a system that would be able to work at a precinct level, and it, we just couldn't do it. <laughs> it was too complicated to program. So we are going to do that in the uh, first in the presidential election. We have a prototype, and it's going to be great. It's amazing. It has, you know, maps that light up, and you'll be able to see exactly when the town results come in, and it will all be done electronically. And all the everything will be plugged in locally uh, into a system that will instantly give us the numbers, and that's a lot easier than when we get them by Pony Express, which is what we get now. We, we
0: still get Pony Express Colin.
1: We're calling it AccuDenise. <laughs> um, oh, so yeah. No. So this so this April
0: is when we will get it for the first time. Is in,
2: in the presidential right. yes. primary. Yes.
0: A- a- and again, is this something that eventually could happen at the municipal level, or just far too complicated in the way it's worked?
2: Far too complicated. We tried it. Actually, and the we, you know the programmers just ran away screaming because it was just not possible.
0: It really is. I mean, it, it
1: is crazy. I mean, for all the reasons she said, it, there is no standard structure. To, I mean, we've got 169 towns, and there's no standard structure to council composition, what constitutes a majority. Some places the mayor is basically the person who gets the biggest vote total among council candidates. New Milford, they had Chief Ironwolf Wolf as a designated write-in candidate. How do you handle that? Right. Um, exactly. I feel bad for <laughs> Chief Iron Wolf. I, ho- I was hoping he'd do better.
0: <laughs> well, before I, I let you go, what else should we be looking for as we as we head toward the primaries there? So we'll be able to experience the Connecticut elections in this new way in real time. Any other changes happening at the polls between now and the next time we probably sit down and talk to you?
2: Um, I'm hoping that we have our electronic poll books in place, probably not by the primary, but certainly by the general election. And what that means is instead of being checked in on pieces of paper and being crossed off uh, you know, by hand. It'll all be done on a laptop.
0: So and, and so people can't actually forget to print those out before the election starts, too, right?
2: Exactly. Oh, okay. So they'll actually be
0: on a computer. Yeah. That's interesting. Huh? Amazing.
2: We'll join the 20th century, if not the 21st. Wow.
0: Okay. So that's a big change. Well, yep. very good. It's uh, good to hear things, for the most part, went fairly smoothly across Connecticut yesterday. Uh, Denise Merrill is the Secretary of State of Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John. When we come back, we're going to be joined by some of our reporters uh, who've been covering the Bridgeport and Hartford mayoral races, also in New London. Rob Simmons is back in Stonington. We'll look at some of the small and mid-sized cities, and we'd like to hear from you at 860-275-7266. We're covering municipal election. Recap here in The Wheelhouse on Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Today, it's Wednesday, so it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. And we're doing a roundup of municipal elections yesterday, a big day in some of Connecticut's biggest cities. We'll be turning to Hartford in just a few minutes. But I want to welcome in Patrick Scahill, who's uh, WNPR's reporter and host of The Beaker, our science blog. He got a political assignment yesterday to cover Joe Gannam. And his re-election bid, well, not exactly a re-election bid, but he's now been re-elected as mayor of Bridgeport. Patrick joins us by phone. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Hi, John. Also with us is Susan Bigelow. She's columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com, who's been covering municipal elections, and our own Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show. Hey, before we get to Bridgeport, Colin, what's on your show this afternoon?
1: Yeah, I was trying to think if I could find a through line, and I can't. But the, way, the show's about coincidences, uh, whether, in fact, what we call a coincidence is, in fact, pure happenstance or something for which there is a mathematical explanation.
0: Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, this is a good program, I think, for today. Uh, One o'clock this afternoon on the Colin McInerney Show. So, Patrick, you were there last night as Joe Ganim. uh He announced his his victory, and it was, I'm sure, quite an odd scene. I know that he'd been tangling with some of the reporters. I understood that the the press corps didn't exactly get a whole lot of love in the room yesterday. What can you tell us about uh, about what was what was the mood at Gannam headquarters last night?
4: Well, I mean, he had a lot of supporters who were there. Um, Booze was flowing. There was lots and lots of pasta. We should say they were at um, Testo's, which is a restaurant that's owned by Mario Testa, who's the sort of longtime Democratic uh, town committee chair there. But people were upbeat. And um, as odd as it sounds, as the results were coming in, there was a a Google spreadsheet that was being updated in real time. And like I'd never seen people. You no know, cheer when they see a spreadsheet get updated before, but over and over <laughs> again the entire audience was erupting as soon as one cell was updated with new numbers
0: you 've obviously never been to uh, to any sort of staff meetings at etna. It happens <laughs> all the time over there so so um Colin, I want to get your take, and I want to get susan 's take on this we 've been obviously talking about this for for quite some weeks and months now, and this was the expected outcome. Is there anything, as you saw this uh, this actually take place last night, Joe Ganim back in the mayor's office, is there anything that strikes you as – really surprising this morning, or are you just kind of looking at this going, wow, Joe Gannon, here we go, once again?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, well, first of all, I think both in the cases of Bridgeport and Hartford, the aftermath of the election will be more interesting than the election itself. Yesterday wasn't a particularly interesting day in either place. These uh, conclusions were pretty foregone, although in the case of Bridgeport, people did nurse in their hearts, people who were not fond of the idea of a, a Mayor Gannum too. They did nurse in their hearts these kind of far-fetched scenarios that led to a win. But what you saw yesterday was the power of the minority vote in Bridgeport. So, you know, I mean, Foster, elections are often about where you can go fishing, which ponds can you fish in. And so Gandom could fish in a lot more ponds. He could run pretty strong among Latinos. He could run pretty strong, uh, very strong, along uh, African-Americans at the Dunbar precinct, which I think is pretty heavily African-American vote. Uh, He was like 750 to 150 against Foster. So, you know, the, the fight was more even in Black Rock and some of the central districts where Torres can run strong. He's the Republican candidate. I don't know if we mentioned him yet. The overall picture was basically an almost two-to-one uh, Ghanem margin. Uh, he was somewhere in the 11,000s. She was somewhere in the 6,000s. Torres didn't break 3,000, at least in the numbers, the last set of numbers I saw. They may not be final numbers. So not a close election, but Ghanem ultimately was able to go to a whole bunch of people and say, won't you take me back and try me one more time? Um, Susan?
3: What I found was interesting was uh, when he was at the sort of uh, at the party there. They uh, someone mentioned uh, Dan Malloy's name and everybody in the room booed (laughs) (laughs) as loudly as they could. And I actually start to wonder now. um, Dan Malloy kind of waded into this one, saying, "Well, I wouldn't vote for him if I were in Bridgeport." And I, I wonder how badly that backfired if people in Bridgeport had this thing where they just didn't want an outsiders starting to meddle in their election.
0: Well, this is something we were talking about in the newsroom earlier, Colin. I think this is a really important thing to remember is we look at the state as basically a small place. It's about the size of the city of Houston, right? But we do have these 169 towns that have their own ways of governing, and they want to pick their own mayors and first select people, and so at the end of the day for whether it's Governor Dan Malloy or anybody else from the state level to weigh in, maybe just like, yeah, take a hike. We're we, It's Bridgeport. We want to vote the way we want to vote.
1: Right. I mean, I, I've, I've said this several times in the wheelhouse over the, the past few months that, I mean, if the kinds of conversations we have on this show had any effect at all in Bridgeport, which I doubt very much, they would probably have the effect of further deepening the resolve of people to reject the wisdom coming in from the outside from anybody. And so, yeah, you have, I mean, every election is very particular to the town and it's very hard hard to understand the sensibilities uh, of a town from outside it. I mean, with Bridgeport, you can see a few things. One of the things you can see is this is a city with a self-image problem, a chronic, long-running self-image problem. They do associate Gannam, Joe Gannam, with a kind of glory day. You know, I mean, there was sort of a period of time where it seemed like Bridgeport was on the rise. He is associated with that time. And in some people's minds, he's more prominently associated with that time than he is associated with going to prison. And then there's to the part about going to prison. And as Patrick was uh, was reporting this story, I did say, go, go talk to Ernie Newton, who said, I think he's the best political pundit in, in Bridgeport. One thing he said is trying to beat Ganem up about his prison time in minority neighborhoods, which suffer from hyper-incarceration, which, re, which view the judicial system as inherently unfair and punitive, places where people, you know, know other people who've been incarcerated. Now, Granted, they, a lot of those people have been sent back to prison on a probation violation over a nickel-and-dime drug charge to begin with, whereas Joe Gannon was involved in actual wholesale corporate uh, corruption and violation uh, in very significant ways of the public trust of the people of Bridgeport. But somehow or other, that got tamped down a little bit, that fact, and, and the notion anyway that people should have a second chance, should get another shot at life because too many people go to prison— probably played pretty well in some of the neighborhoods heavily afflicted by that phenomenon.
0: Hey, Patrick, could you talk a little bit about that and what you were hearing from some of these staunch Gannon supporters last night in the days leading up to this election as well?
4: well. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I think part of it is um, we have to look at the campaigns that Mary Jane Foster and earlier Bill Finch ran. Um, and both of them, as Colin was saying, were harping on this message that, hey, you know, here's a guy who went to federal prison. He was there for seven years. He made a ton of mistakes. And because of those mistakes, he should not come back. And as Ernie Newton and several other people in Bridgeport told me, that's a message that just doesn't really work well in Bridgeport. I mean, this is a city that's seen harder times. Their unemployment rate is higher than other parts of the state. They have problems with crime and, and, and education and a lot of other issues. Uh, when you harp on a message like that, it just doesn't really, really play well. And, and Joe Ganim is able to know, like, where that message uh, will not play well. And he goes into those communities and targets his message there and gets those people to come out and vote for him.
0: What are the people who were supporting Joe Gannam last night? What are they saying they want to see the city be? Is it about a wholesale change in the way government works? Is it about taxes? What What are the things that they care about that Joe Gannam going to change in their lives?
4: Well, I mean, it's interesting. Last night, there wasn't a lot of talk about the future in specific terms. I mean, you know, right, it's it's kind of like every political uh, rally ever, I guess. I mean. Joe Gannon was talking about uh, holding the line on taxes and, and restoring Bridgeport's broken education system and bringing crime down. But, I mean, I think, yeah, the big question is, A, can he do that? And also going forward, just uh, the, the really big question here, in my opinion, is how are um, people at the state level going to view Bridgeport now? Are people at the Capitol going to be willing to you know, give money to an administration run by Joe Gannon who went to jail in the past for corruption? Um, and also, how is Governor Malloy going to deal with this? how are outside contractors who are going to come in and do business with the city of uh, Bridgeport? Are they going to want to play ball there?
0: I want to quickly get to a phone call. Derek's calling from Windsor. Hey, Derek, what's on your mind?
5: How are you, doing? Great job as usual. I, I don't hear anyone mention this, but I just want to say that the mayor of Bridgeport, Joe Ganim, has been reelected. And I have no problem with that. But the point is, he has committed a crime and he went to jail, he did his time, and that's how the American people talk, but sometimes the walk doesn't follow the talk, and they give him a second chance. Uh, my thing is that I hope we see this on a broader spectrum. We are the little guy from the ghetto. When he goes to jail and his time, he can come out and people offer them employment, and I know the president is working on issues like these, but that's what I want to say, um, John. I hope it happens for... Joe Ganim, I see it happen for John Rowland, even though he didn't get back into government, but he came out and got a nice job, paid well. (laughs) So I would just love, as an average guy, to see the same thing happen for everyone. Once you commit a crime, you do your time. Americans talk about second chance. So we've got to live what we talk. Well, thank I, you very much, John.
0: Derek, thank thank you very much. And Susan, I think that that's really a key point before we move move off of this, is, is that Derek and I think many people in Bridgeport are looking at this and going, okay, well, we, we have a second chance society for some classes of politicians who are very well connected, um, that doesn't exactly exist for all of the rest of us, certainly not a whole lot of people in Hartford, certainly not a whole lot of people in Bridgeport.
3: No, and that's true. And I think that that's why that, that redemption narrative that that Gannam sort of surrounded himself with was so powerful. The idea that, yeah, you can actually come back and you can build your life, you can re-enter society and, and be a great person. But of course, um, yeah, there is this this sort of two-tiered system, whereas if if, uh, if Gannam had been you know, just somebody who went to jail for pot or something like that, he wouldn't have gotten the same sort of uh, chance that he got for, for, for to come back and run for mayor again.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, to Derek's point, for, first of all, what these things are analogous to nothing else, as, as Susan is suggesting as well. There, I mean, it really is like robbing a bank, going to prison and getting out and becoming vice president of the same bank. Uh, that's what we're seeing here. And there's no parallel between that and what happens to, to other kinds of offenders. The other thing I would quickly say before we move on to Hartford is I, I do feel as though the Foster campaign overreached. I mean, maybe they they had a legitimate mission. But, you know, at one point, Tom Swan, who was, I guess, sort of the de facto Mary Ann Foster, uh, Mary Jane Foster campaign manager, at one point he was suggesting that Rick Torres, who was the Republican nominee should get out of the race. Well, I mean, you know, to suggest that somebody who's got a ballot line, who's a Latino candidate in a minority city, should get out of the race to get to make way for your rich white lady who's, you know, uh, who's a petitioning candidate. I mean, I thought that was kind of offensive, actually, uh, particularly if you're not really from Bridgeport, which Tom is not. Um, So, I mean, I just feel like there wasn't really a message that Foster had other than I'm better than Joe Gannam. I'm a better person than Joe Gannam. I'm more trustworthy than Joe Gannam. And in terms of the number of pe- the kinds of people who wound up deciding this election, that wasn't enough of a message.
3: So I think now the question is what, what happens now. And I think that expectations at least outside of Bridgeport are so low for Joe Gannam that he's probably going to have a pretty easy time exceeding those. And his administration, I think for at least a little while is going to be one of the most watched. Uh, people are going to have their eye on him, so he won't be able to get up to anything.
0: Well, it's it's being washed nationwide. Patrick Scahill, our reporter, has been reporting on this uh, race for NPR. Hey, Patrick, before I let you go, we got a tweet last night from our friend Susan here. She said, "Ganem's biggest crime, playing Eye of the Tiger on a loop at his headquarters. Is it, can, can we confirm this? Is that what was playing at, at HQ?
4: I woke up with. I woke up this morning and I could not get it out of my head, and I <laughs> want it to go away. <laughs> well,
0: even more mind-bogglingly, Joe
1: Sandeputro, who was there, former Waterbury mayor, uh, who also went to prison on corruption charges, when they started playing that, allegedly said they're playing my song, and apparently it was played for him when he got out of prison. So, <laughs> the "Eye of the Tiger" is the last musical refuge
0: of scoundrels. Hey, hey, Patrick, go go get some sleep, and maybe you can get that out of your head later on today. Will do. Thanks, John. Patrick Scahill covers science for WNPR, but he's also been covering this Bridgeport mayor's race. Uh, let's move on to our own Jeff Cohen. He covers uh, Hartford for WNPR. Before we uh, hear from Jeff, let's hear from Luke Bronan, the mayor-elect of Hartford. The
4: challenges are big, but so is Hartford's promise. And so is Hartford's heart. And so are our aspirations for our city. And with leadership and accountability and action and with tough choices, tough decisions, but clear priorities, and with time, we will get our city working again.
0: Jeff Cohen, that's Luke Bronin last night. What were some of your takeaways from what we essentially knew was going to happen? A Bronan victory party last night.
6: Yeah, well, I'm actually madly Googling the meaning of uh, Bruce Springsteen's song, The Rising, because that's what was playing. Uh, in contrast to "Eye of the Tiger," and I think I think that song actually has to do with September 11th, John. It does. So, it has to do with
0: 9/11, yeah, and death.
6: That, <laughs> so that was the song that that Bronin came out. It was sort of you know pumped people up, I suppose. But uh, no, it, it wasn't any great surprise that that Bronin won. There weren't any great election problems in the city of Hartford. Although it is worth noting that on the day before the election, Olga Vasquez, the deputy registrar of voters, uh, rather the Democratic registrar of voters, fired her deputy just the day before the election. So that caused, you know, some concern, although no real problems. Um, but, it, you know, it wasn't much of a surprise. If you're being f- frank about it in Hartford, if you win the Democratic primary, odds are you'll win the general election. Uh, and current Mayor Pedro Segarra, who lost the primary, hasn't had the greatest run of things. Um, you could say, you know, evidence of that maybe that he was taking heat last night from um Supporters of former Mayor Eddie Perez, including the mayor himself, was there, and Matt Hennessy, his former chief of staff, were there. So, so like that's where the beating is coming from uh, <laughs> of Mayor Segarra. So that Bronin one wasn't a whole
0: lot of a surprise. Some of what was in your story, and I think that this this is what many people have said, is Pedro Segarra would have thrived under the old Hartford system of the weak mayor, someone who uh, had essentially a ceremonial job, someone who oversaw the city in much the way Mike Peters did, not in the way that uh, Eddie Perez did when it became a strong mayor form of government. That's sort of something you were hearing last night. and, And a lot of the Luke Bronin supporters are saying their guy is the guy to actually take this job and move it into the new role that it's supposed to be.
6: That's right. That's the narrative that's been around Pedro for a while. I'm sure he would disagree with it. His Supporters would disagree with it. But um, that's right. Th- that narrative is that he wasn't exactly great on details and administration. I mean, look, there are real problems, John, in the city of Hartford, the kind of challenges that you get that are sort of brought about by history and demographics and, and all those sorts of things in a, in a, in a major American city. Uh, but then there are sort of these self-inflicted wounds. Uh, you know this stadium, this baseball stadium, is was sort of like a lame duck political, like not uh, uh, like a bad political issue for the mayor when it could have been a good one. Dillon Stadium, another stadium issue. There's a federal investigation about a soccer stadium. The mayor bought caviar with a credit card a few years ago at a fancy restaurant. Yeah, there's a there's there's at least three federal investigations that I can think of involving city hall. The, you know, even the governor complains that they can't plow the streets in the winter. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it, there are things you can control. Uh, there are things you can't control. But the things that were under the mayor's control consistently made it into the news uh, for things that weren't ter- necessarily going very well. And so people see that as an opening, I think, for Brunan.
0: Colin?
1: So, yeah, this is, I think, um, an election. In some ways, I regard the aftermath of this election as more interesting than the Bridgeport election, even though the Bridgeport election is more colorful. I actually think with Bridgeport, the reality is going to be it's kind of too big to fail. Everybody's going to have to get along. People have to, you know, the state is not going to be able to treat. Joe Gannum is some kind of arch criminal that they can't give any money to or anything like that. I mean, you know, there are going to be some problems and some p- projects that were launched under Finch that are going to get stalled and, you know, some payback and stuff, but it'll all shake out. Here, I think what we have is a real test of people's assumptions about what works. You have a city that's dysfunctional in all the ways that Jeff is just suggesting, and more, uh, you know, the, the city auditors, every time they look at a department of the city, they just find horrible amounts of mismanagement. Um, so, and then here you have this guy who who comes in, who represents our – he's like in a diorama of the meritocracy, right? He's like super educated, very competent. He's worked in very interesting positions uh, within the U.S. Treasury. He's been in Afghanistan investigating stuff for the Navy. I mean he's done all this – he's got all of the credentials on paper. And the question is how transferable – are all those book smarts and all those credentials to the problems of a pretty recalcitrant, entrenched city government that hasn't worked right for a really long time? Can this guy go into the fire department, the police department, the public works department and turn around these city agencies in a way that, that his predecessors haven't just on the strength of what we know are his, his, his sort of attainments heretofore? Uh, Susan?
3: And I think we'll probably find that out pretty soon. It, looking at his uh, hearing his speech, there talking. He's talking about tough choices, tough decisions. That sounds like somebody who's got some ideas for what he wants to do and is prepared to make some or at least propose some pretty radical changes. So um, I'm hoping we'll see something from him soon on that.
0: The, the other thing, Jeff, uh, before we let you go about radical changes along with this is kind of a clean slate of new Democrats who are running the city. And uh, this is kind of an important thing for this new Brunan administration.
6: Certainly, I mean, he has campaigned with the six Democrats on the City Council who are all new, who will help him usher through whatever it is that whatever kind of changes he's looking to usher usher in. And when it comes to that question of tough choices, you know, the city budget is the biggest tough choice or series of tough choices that it's out there. It is, it is, you know, talk about permanent state of fiscal crisis. The city selling garages, selling its assets, like selling desks. To, make the, to balance the budget. That's not a sustainable plan going forward. But you have to keep in mind that if you're going to make cuts in city government, the city of Hartford is one of the major employers for people who live in the city. So that means potentially cutting back uh, on the very people who helped get you to office. That is a tough choice. If you know, And should it come to that, it won't be uh, an easy uh, landscape for, for Mayor-elect Bronin.
1: Could I just say The Rising is about a dead firefighter at 9-11 who's saying goodbye to the people he's left back on Earth. It's not really an appropriate song to be playing when you win an election.
6: <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't. I'm nearly, I'm tell you, I'm nearly certain that what it was. I'm not the
1: biggest no, was at the, He played it at the primary too when he, on the, when he won the primary uh, he played that song okay. too. So yeah. that's clearly his theme song. He doesn't understand Don't what the lyrics
0: mean. read too deeply into the lyrics I suppose. It just has a nice beat. You can't really dance to it but it gets people fired up. Jeff Cohen covers Hartford for WMPR. Thanks so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. You're welcome, John. Before we take a break, let's quickly go to Laura in West Hartford. Hey, Laura, what's on your mind?
7: Hi. Um, I asked my question, and then I'm going to hang up and let you guys answer it, hopefully. Uh, I live in West Hartford, as you mentioned, and everybody I talk to is complaining about the increase in our property taxes, car tax, um, and really not seeing anything to warrant that increase. Uh, since I've lived here, it's been about 12 years. My property taxes have more than doubled. And then we keep electing the same folks to city council, and they elect the same person to mayor. Nothing changes. Um, also, then you look at Brit- uh, New Britain, and they have cleaned house the last few, years, the last two elections, and are trying to put in new people to try to turn the city around. Can in- You guys help me understand what's going on. Why is one city complaining and not changing anything and paying through the nose in taxes where we really don't see something that warrants a more than doubling of our taxes versus another city that? hit hard times, and they're like, let's try something new.
0: Mm. Well, Laura, thank you very much for that question. I'll go to you first, Susan. So, uh, Laura's in West Hartford. She's talking about New Britain just down the road. We have seen big changes. Of course, a second term now for Mayor Aaron Stewart, but this is a fresh face in the mayor's office. The first time, I believe, that a woman has been elected uh, mayor for
3: a second term in New Britain. So uh, answer Laura's question. Right, and that's absolutely true. What's what's interesting, uh, what's really interesting to me about New Britain is that this is a heavily Democratic city. Uh, just like West Hartford is a heavily Democratic town. But the Republicans now control this, the Common Council in New Britain, and they don't just control it by one or two. It's I think it's 12 to 2. It's it's amazing uh, the strength of the Republican win in Bridgeport. The Republicans have not controlled... In New Britain. In, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> in New Britain. I'm sorry, Bridgeport's on the mind. Uh, in New Britain, this has not happened since 1971. Um, so suddenly you have an opposition party... That's actually strong and has competent leadership that can work across party lines. I mean, Aaron Stewart was endorsed by two unions, which is unheard of in New Britain history, really. It doesn't happen. So it's a question, I think, of allowing the opposition party to be stronger, uh, of people actually being willing to support the opposition party. That's how you get things done. Uh, And I know people may be hesitant to support Republicans because they don't like what they do at the national level. But on the town level... Maybe that's the only way you can clean house.
1: Well, so the mayor of West Hartford, his name is Scott Slivka. He's an elf lord. He's been a mayor ever since he got one of the rings of power. Uh, but more seriously, I think what you really see in West Hartford is um, first of all, yeah, uh, to Susan's point, there there isn't a feverish insurgency in West Hartford. What there is is kind of a govern, governing coalition of Democrats and Republicans. that seem to get along pretty well. I mean, I don't, I, you know, you don't sort of see the rhetoric that you even saw a few election cycles ago when there were when there were were more discontented Republicans running angrier campaigns. And if you go back far enough, you know, I mean, West Hartford was the kind of town that that tipped back and forth uh, quite a bit between the two parties. It wasn't a one party town at all my thought about this is people in West Hartford are pretty happy. Um, and, and yeah, they may not be too happy with the mill rate, but um, they're pretty happy with the town they have, the government they have, the schools they have, uh, the way the city departments function or town departments function. Uh, people are pretty happy with that. So it's much harder to run an insurgency in a situation where people aren't deeply unhappy. They may not like their taxes that much, but they feel like they're getting a lot for their taxes.
0: Well, the, the term that comes to mind as Colin talks to is, is quality of life. And that's something we honestly don't talk about in politics all that much. I mean, how how good's my life? And for a lot of people in West Hartford, certainly not everybody, life's, you know, pretty good. In some other places in Connecticut, not always so.
3: Right. And I think that's part of the case in, in New Britain. Uh, incumbents don't tend to lose unless there's some kind of a crisis, unless people feel like there's a crisis, which is, of course, why you have uh, challengers trying to make people afraid and worried and, and stressed out. And I think in New Britain, it finally got to that crisis point where people were willing to clean house. Uh, where people were willing to accept the kind of radical changes and there was was tax hikes and reorganizations and everything else in New Britain that Aaron Stewart did, Uh, that people were actually willing to accept that and vote for it because, again, their quality of life was being impacted, and that that's a real push for change.
0: You know, and, and again, we'll bring it back to baseball. Uh, Pedro Segarra lost his re-election bid by bringing a baseball team there. In part, uh, Aaron Stewart brought another baseball team in. When that baseball team left, and people seem to like that. Okay, Susan Biglow's here. She's a columnist for. Can I just say also, yeah. we're
1: getting the West Hartford alfrescos. Uh, <laughs> we're very
0: excited about that. <laughs> That's Colin McEnroe. He's the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WMPR. Susan Bigelow, columnist for CTNewsJunkie.com. When we come back, our own Harriet Jones talks to us about what happened in southeastern Connecticut in New London in her hometown of Stonington. We'll also go through some other races that found we found a little bit interesting yesterday as we wrap up Municipal Elections 2015 in the wheelhouse on where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up on tomorrow's show, Governor Dan Malloy will stop by to talk a bit about his new pension plan. And we'll also talk about gun violence in our state. Uh, later on in the program tomorrow, we'll be joined by some experts from Boston who've helped to turn around gun violence in that city. Local hospitals are trying to learn from them. We will try to learn from them as well on tomorrow's program. Today, it's the Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Susan Bigelow from com is here, as is Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Joining us now by phone is Harriet Jones, who covers southeastern Connecticut and business for WNPR. You are covering two interesting races. Let's get to New London first, Harriet. Not a big surprise in New London, but obviously an important uh, result for the city.
8: Yes, a similar narrative in New London to what we were hearing about in Hartford. You know, really the interesting, the um, nail-biter was in September for the primary, um, which Michael Passereau won over the incumbent Daryl Justin Finizio. Um So Michael Passereau went forward for la- last night's um, election, either you know, somewhat as a coronation. And in fact, that's the way it turned out that he beat his Republican challenger, Bill Vogel, by more than two to one. Um, in a very low turnout election, I think there's just about 22 percent of registered uh, voters turned out in New London yesterday.
0: And what was this election about, really? I mean, what are the problems in New London right now that hopefully this this new mayor, Michael Passereau, is going to try to turn around?
8: He does have some, you know, he, he has some challenges ahead. Um, again, with a contentious primary, he has to kind of reunite his party um, and refocus City Hall. Um, he has to uh, look at the police department. He has to look at other city employees. See where he wants to spend some of his cash and see also where he needs to balance the books. He's also looking at uh, voters in in New London approved an all-magnet school district coming up. So he's got to look at that, how he's going to manage a $200 million rebuilding uh, project for the city schools. Um, so plenty of management challenges ahead. Professor.
0: Now, just next door to New London, though, uh, a familiar face, uh, Rob Simmons uh, ran for first selectman. I you, you actually talked to him on Tuesday. Here's what he had to say.
6: I live in Stonington. My family's been here for several generations. My wife's family's been here for nine generations. We love the town. And when we felt the town was in distress, the town was being written up in the papers for some of the issues involving our former first selectman um, I answered
3: the call to service.
0: Uh, Harriet Jones, Rob Simmon, of course, former uh, U.S. congressman, could have been a U.S. senator. And now he takes over the job in Stonington.
8: Yeah, it, it, kind of a surprise for some people when he actually stood. He was answering a question for me last night. Why, why did you do this? Why are you interested in this job where, you know, you're going to be concerned with, do the snowplows turn up at five in the morning and, you know, is there a cat up the tree? Um <laughs> you know, why at the age of 72 would you not just be wanting to retire and rest on your laurels? Uh, But he he was very offended by what happened under Ed Haberak, He referenced that in that cut right there, um, who left hall under a cloud after a a sexting scandal. And Rob felt this really um, brought the town into disrepute, so he wanted to stand for first selectman. Yeah, I
1: thought it was a nice gesture last night that uh, Ed Haberick actually sent Rob Simmons a congratulatory sext (laughs) and said, uh, congratulations, you look really hot. I can't actually read the rest of it on here.
8: <laughs> it was an interesting contest, though, because, you know, uh, this is one where I really felt it was going to be closer. I, I couldn't predict who was going to win. I really felt it was going to be very close because the person he was up against, George Krause, is immensely popular in town. He doesn't have the national rec- name recognition, obviously, that Rob Simmons does, but he's the girls' high school tennis coach. He's taught for 30 years. Everybody in their grandma knows George. Nobody has a bad word to say about George. So it was very interesting that Rob beat him as handily as he did.
0: Harriet Jones covers southeastern Connecticut for WMPR. Thanks so much, Harriet. I appreciate it. You're welcome. We just have a couple minutes for a couple of important races, including one you've been following in Meriden. What happened in Meriden, Susan?
3: Right. So that that was a really close election. Uh, between the incumbent uh, mayor Santos, a Republican, he's a first-term Republican, um, and he he had a very strong challenger, and it looks like his challenger's his name, I believe, is Scarpetti. Um, it looks like the challengers beat him by only about a hundred votes. So, as we were talking about earlier, that looks like that might go to a recount, but that that's a, a really close race, and it's just interesting to watch just how close. And how hard fought that campaign was.
0: And another very close race involving someone with a statewide name recognition, Colin and Trumbull.
1: Yeah. And so in Trumbull, Tim Herbst is sort of the been. he ran for state treasurer in the last election and is regarded as kind of a great white hope. Not that there is any other kind in the state Republican Party right now, but he went from winning. By uh, he took seventy percent of the vote in the last election cycle. Last night it was a squeaker uh, in with about I don't know eleven thousand and change uh, in terms of votes counted. Uh, he was only ahead. I mean he did win uh, by three hundred and something votes. 357 votes. And interestingly, Anthony Musto, who was a state senator, uh, ran for town treasurer, another one of these things where you're kind of taking a, a step down. He lost his state senate seat. And he seemed to have won by 118 votes. So another squeaker there. And it's, I, I don't know what the explanation is. Sometimes towns don't like it if you spend more time running for state office than running the town. He also had a, uh, Herbst had a couple of run-ins involving the arts, one involving the musical rent and the other one involving, involving a piece of art that was, I think, up at the town library. <laughs> uh, but it is, uh, as, he, as he claimed victory, he did sing Seasons of Love from Rex. So I thought that was, Very that was a beautiful moment.
0: We have about a minute left. Anyway, Dan Drew won re-election in Middletown, but sort of a, a crazy race there, Colin.
1: Well, yeah. So near the end, the, each candidate filed an S-E-E-C, an elections enforcement complaint against the other, having to do with campaign finances. Um, Drew's campaign against his opponent, uh, Sandra Russo-Driska, uh, was that she was taking donations in cash. It turns out you can legally take cash donations up to $100. I had no idea. That seems like a really bad idea that any cash donation of any size could be legal. He was claiming that one of her donations may have been as big as $1,000 in cash, which meant that I had to go to two AGM machines.
0: Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I just don't think, any, I don't think there should be cash donations. I should have mentioned that to Madam Secretary when she was here. Right. Well, I'm sure she'll be back here in the spring and we can talk about that and all the new interesting election stuff that's coming up. Thanks for joining us on our wrap-up of 2015 municipal elections. Susan Biglows. She's a columnist for ctnewsjunkie.com. Thanks for all your help covering these elections, Susan. Thank you. And also Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. He's going to be talking about coincidences this afternoon at one o'clock. Thanks, Colin. What a coincidence. Our program today produced by Lydia Brown with help from the rest of our staff, Tucker Ives and Betsy Kaplan, Josh Nilea. Kion Wolf is our technical producer. Heather Brandon is our digital editor. Feel better, Heather. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. Our interns are Zachary Lasala and Nate Gagnon. Continue the conversation at WNPR.org slash Live. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.